0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. And a conversation this week about neoliberalism and the inevitability of the market. We're at a point in our history where the injustices and incoherences and the dangers of market capitalism have never been more apparent. And while there's a lot of talk about how we might tinker with the system or try to reform it from within, the idea that we could get rid of market economies altogether and replace them with something else is generally held to be naive or unacceptably radical or even something bordering on the heretical. The market economy, we're led to believe, is just the way things have to be. But every now and then, someone pops up with an experimental alternative, and today we're going to be hearing the story of one of those experiments and what became of it. My guest is Jessica White. She's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales. She's the author of the book, Morals and the Market. Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism, which we spoke about on this program a couple of years ago. Jessica White is also this year's winner of the Annette Bayer Prize, which is awarded annually by the Australasian Association of Philosophy for an outstanding philosophical paper or book chapter, and the paper that won the prize this year truly is outstanding. I'll give you some more details later in the program. Jessica White joins me now. Jessica, welcome back to The Philosopher's Zone.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: We're telling a story, part of what we're doing today, and um, it's a story that begins in the immediate aftermath of the First World War and a short-lived political experiment that's known today as the Munich Soviet Republic, or sometimes known as the Bavarian Soviet Republic. First of all, just tell me about that political experiment. What was going on?
1: So this is something that happened in the context of the German Revolution in the wake of World War One. That you saw this um, revolution, or in a sense, a series of revolutions in Bavaria, or specifically in Munich, and the establishment, firstly of a. Uh, republican government and then ultimately of a Soviet government. It was a very short-lived experiment and it was a fascinating one because it was really a sort of a government that was led by theatre critics and playwrights and poets in its early stage and it provided the terrain for an attempt to really imagine a different kind of society and a different kind of economy. So a figure that I've worked on and I'm interested in um, Otto Neurath, who was a leading philosopher and member of the Vienna Circle, travelled to Munich in the context of this Soviet Republic and he wanted to get involved in putting into practice ideas about economic planning that he'd been developing for sort of at least a decade. And so he was appointed as the economic um, sort of the planning commissioner of this uh, Republican government. And he went about trying to put into practice a form of economy that would have dispensed entirely with money and with monetary calculation in favour of what he called calculation in kind or an economy in kind.
0: And this was an economy designed to, I don't know if the quote is is from him, but he wanted to serve people's happiness. Um, How was that going to work out? I mean, particularly with this um, use of uh, calculation in kind rather than uh, money. How did that all work and how was it designed to serve people's happiness?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I think is important to note is that Noirat said that he believed that this kind of transformation could be undertaken in five to ten years, whereas in fact this experiment only had several months. So he would argue afterwards that these ideas were untested and to a certain extent I think that's correct. I mean, the first thing to say is that he was very much a sort of empirical thinker and he was interested in trying to develop large-scale studies which would actually inform how economies should be organised in the interests of human happiness. Some of the basic aspects of what he was proposing involved ensuring minimum amounts of food, of education, of housing, of leisure for all, a general wage system that would have detached the wages that were paid to people from the profitability of the firm in which they worked. uh, And Generally, what he wanted to do was involve as many people as possible through workers' councils and various forms of representative bodies in the control and organisation of economic life. So it's important to note that this came out of a very strong and very widespread at the time criticism of the market economy, that it was racked by crisis, that it generated enormous amounts of unemployment amongst people who wanted to work and could have participated in uh, productive and useful work, that it led to the dumping of raw materials and to underproduction when that production was not amenable to profit making. So, on the basis of this kind of criticism, he tried to work out how it would be possible to reorganise economic life. And I think we're going to talk about the socialist or economic calculation debate, but it's worth saying that he was sort of one of the, the early figures to have thought through some of the limits of market economies and the possibilities of moving beyond them. And one of the things that really stands out about his contribution, unlike that of even subsequent socialists, is that this argument that we should abolish money altogether and that monetary calculation could not be the sole basis of deciding what to produce, how to produce. And one of the things looking at him from a distance of a century or so that really stands out is that one of the things that he argued needed to be taken into consideration in any decisions about what to produce, was the intergenerational ecological consequences of any particular decision. So if you were going to make a decision about whether to expand a coal mine or utilise a river for a waterworks to produce electricity or a windmill, you couldn't simply base your decision on profitability. You had to take into consideration the intergenerational ecological consequences of any decision.
0: So he was he was quite ahead of his time in that sense, and I guess there's a sense in which the Munich Soviet Republic was ahead of its time, but, as you said, it only lasted for a few months. What happened?
1: Well, it was ultimately violently suppressed. Um, Norat himself was arrested, he was charged with high treason, numerous people who were involved in the revolution were also charged, and many, many were slaughtered by the Freikorps, the sort of precursors in some ways to the Nazi party. And so in many ways, it was a very sad story. And certainly also it was a story in which the people involved in that were not free of blame. And I don't think today we would look upon Neurart's plans or those of others in that period and assume that they could simply be taken up wholesale today. Mm. Certainly one of the real problems that that Soviet had was that while they were in power in Munich, they had generally not convinced people in the surrounding countryside of the wisdom of these kind of experiments. Um, But I think that... What is really valuable in that period and what Norat held out was a vision of utopia, which he argued utopias are simply visions of the future that have not yet come into being. And so they're constructions that we can use to orient a process of invention and a process of empirical research which would aim towards certain state of affairs. So they're not impossible happenings, they're just bases for action and bases for trying to reconsider how a society and how an economy could be organised.
0: And around this time we have the beginnings of what's come to be known as the socialist calculation debate, or at least the term was coined around this time. And this was an early 20th century wrangle over how best to structure an economy with proponents of capitalism squaring off against proponents of socialism, and also proponents of different kinds of socialism arguing with each other. But I'm interested here in the market economists, what are the arguments in favour of the market that we see taking shape in that debate?
1: Okay, so the key figure who really is often talked about as kicking off this debate is the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, who was uh, a mentor of Hayek and of many of the other figures we've come to think of as neoliberals, um, and he was, in this context, responding partially at least, to Neurath and to Neurath's plans. Now, that aspect often gets obscured, but um, this was the context in which Mises made these arguments, starting from 1920. So the first argument that he made is that without a price system, there can simply be no rational economy at all. Now, it's worth noting that Mises was working in a tradition of Austrian economics, going back to... um, Menger, who was um, really the founder of the Austrian school, and he had what we talk about as a subjectivist theory of value. So against, say, classical labour theories of value, um, Menger and the Austrian school argued that there was no unit or no objective measure of value, that values were simply subjective. And therefore, the individual values of people or of what sometimes gets called use values, the things that we want to use things for, simply can't be compared according to any kind of objective standard. So, what this meant was that only market prices could, in a sense, retrospectively ensure some kind of comparability or commensurability between things as different as apples and windmills, for example. Now, Mises argued that on the level of consumption, it was easy enough to make direct decisions about what we prefer. Do we prefer apples or do we prefer oranges? But that at the level of production and means of production, that it was impossible to rationally make decisions about the use of productive uh, materials and the use of resources without some system of economic calculation, which would enable us to determine what form of use was the most efficient. So that was the key argument of Mises, that without a price system and therefore also without private ownership of the means of production, that no rational economic calculation would be possible. And then this argument was sort of taken further by Friedrich Hayek, who made a related argument but stressed the problem of knowledge and argued that, market societies relied on enormously dispersed forms of knowledge and that no planner could ever have the ability to sort of consolidate all that knowledge in a way that would enable a rational plan and that what markets were particularly good at was enabling individuals to act on the basis of their own knowledge, but also by simply looking at prices to act in the absence of knowledge about the factors that have influenced those prices. So to put that concretely, say there had been a flood on the other side of the world that had decimated wheat supply, individuals may not know about that flood, but they would recognise that the price of wheat had increased and they could therefore substitute something else, barley perhaps, in favour of wheat. But I think it's also worth mentioning that there were also political arguments and that particularly Hayek was increasingly influential in making a political argument for the superiority of the market as the only thing that would enable um, forms of uh, human freedom.
0: Yeah, and peace also plays into this, doesn't it? Mises associated the market economy with peace. As you put it in your paper, he saw every market exchange as a peace treaty, while um, planned economies represented violence and coercion. What was he getting at there?
1: Yeah, this is a really fascinating aspect of the the argument, I think, and I think it's often lost because there's a tendency to think of the socialist calculation debate simply as a technical argument about efficiency and productivity. But Mises' argument was in many ways a political argument from the beginning. And it relied on this idea that because values were inherently subjective, um, what markets enabled was for every individual to pursue their own values and to come to agreements with others without any need to have an ultimate value scale. So, each individual could pursue their own plans um, rather than having one single plan which would tell them what needed to be done. Now, the argument was that any attempt, to have a single economic plan relied on the imposition of a single value scale and that the attempt to formulate that value scale could only lead to significant conflict and um, endless bloody fighting, as Mises puts it somewhere. So, basically, we have this dichotomy that starts then but runs right through neoliberal thought where on the one hand political decision making is always framed by the neoliberals as a realm of conflict coercion violence whereas on the other hand market relations are conceived as realms of freedom in which individuals pursue their own values and their own plans and come to voluntary mutually agreeable uh, Agreements with others. So there was this kind of argument that the moment that you start planning, you create a condition in which individuals will constantly be fighting and in conflict about what that plan should be. What it excluded is something that Neurath argued late in life, which is the idea that planning could actually be a product of forms of cooperation and compromise. So this argument was really, um, I think, a very important one for the neoliberals, that planning would lead to violence and to conflict, and also that therefore it would need to be coercively imposed on people.
0: You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge speaking this week with Jessica White, who's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at University of New South Wales. Jessica is also the winner of this year's Annette Bayer Philosophy Prize for an article published in the South Atlantic Quarterly that tells the story we're hearing today, but in a lot more detail and with a lot more analysis, and it's just a wonderful read. Details on the Philosopher's Zone website. So you've been telling me how liberal economists like Ludwig von Mises associated the market economy with peace. What interests me is that Mises and his fellow travellers were living in the golden age of European colonialism, perhaps a little past the high-water mark, but still the the project of European empires going out and subjugating other nations in order to plunder their resources and all the violence that resulted, that was all happening and all in the service of capital. makes it seem ironic, at the very least, that Mises could talk about the market as an instrument of peace in, in the way that he did, How did he try to square that circle?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And it's something that he actually paid quite a bit of attention to. And his position changed across time. So early on, he actually framed himself as a critic of colonialism, and framed colonialism as an illegitimate use of political power to subjugate others, to dominate. And his solution to colonialism was markets. He argued that if all the world's raw materials were simply available for purchase on the world market, then there'd be no need to actually colonize territory. There'd be no need to dominate other people. But interestingly, he consistently made an exception for the British Empire, you know, the cliche <laughs> right. being that this was the, the empire of free trade. And he argued that this empire existed as what he called a mandatory for civilization as a whole. And so Mises actually, for someone who talked about market peace, was very upfront about. The fact that the imposition of market relations had relied on extraordinary violence. So, if we take the example, say, of the Opium Wars, which forced China to trade and particularly to trade in opium, he argued that ultimately this was for the benefit of all civilization, because any country that refuses to trade with others and that wants to retain its self sufficiency does an injury to all of humanity. So this was interestingly a kind of just war argument for trade wars, that just by trying to maintain their self-sufficiency, any people can be seen as injuring all others. And so anyone has a right to force those people to offer their raw materials for sale on the world market. So Mises defended all of the violence which led to the creation of the world market, the kind of Colonizations that we saw somewhere like this country, for example, um, as being simply necessary to the greater benefit of all of humanity. He said this ultimately, this sort of violence of trade wars benefited. He says every Chinese person, every Indian, as well as every American, every European. So everyone benefits from this colonial violence. Hmm. So. I mean, this is a kind of extraordinary argument that, as Norrard pointed out, many of the arguments for peaceful markets really only got going once the violence that created those markets in the first place could be obscured or could be hidden from view.
0: Well, Norrard also engaged with um, Hayek at at the end of World War II. He wrote a review of The Road to Serfdom, which was um, Friedrich Hayek's Anti socialist tract. And in that review, he made a very prescient warning about what might happen if people became convinced that market capitalism on one hand and authoritarian statism on the other hand were the only two games in town. What was that warning?
1: Well, I mean, his frightful warning was that if people were told that these were the only two options, there was no guarantee that they wouldn't choose the authoritarian option. And I think, I mean, this is something that I think is worth us considering today because we've lived through decades in which the neoliberal insistence that the only alternative to competitive markets is an authoritarian serfdom has been dominant. And Norat was really despairing of this. He said, we really need to consider that there's another option, which is the possibility of planning for freedom not an authoritarian form of planning in which the state converts all of society into a giant factory or a barracks, but a form in which people are organised in numerous forms of association and which enables what he termed economic tolerance, different forms of economic orders existing within a single overall plan. And he said, if we dispense with this possibility, then we force people into this false choice with no guarantees about which way they will choose. So he was responding to the kind of arguments that Hayek really promoted in The Road to Serfdom, that the moment you set off in any way down the path towards economic redistribution or attempting to produce greater equality, that you necessarily end up in totalitarianism or serfdom. Ludwig von Mises makes one of the most almost kind of parodying versions of this argument where he says, you know, it may be that you start simply with a plan to subsidise milk so that parents can afford milk for their children, but slowly but surely socialism on the model of the Nazis uh, comes into existence. So it was this kind of automatic progression that Norrath was trying to challenge and saying no there are numerous alternatives against the neoliberal insistence that there's no alternative he really wanted to stress that there are many many possible ways that a society could be organized and that what was really central was that we researched and we thought through and we involved people in trying to determine what form of economy would actually make people most happy And it may not be one which leads to great unemployment, profound inequality. It may not even be one which leads to endless growth. He was open to the possibility that people may choose to produce less, but to also work less or to have more um, more leisure time rather than simply more productivity.
0: So in the end, Neurath failed, as have done others who who try to insist that there are numerous other options for organising social and economic life than the market. And what I want to finish up with is just this question of why we have been so completely drawn into this belief. It's almost like a religious belief that market capitalism is just the way things are and that there's no alternative that doesn't lead to some kind of disaster.
1: Mm. Yeah, look, I think that there uh There's not a single answer, and I think we should be upfront about the fact that the Soviet Union offered a very disastrous example of forms of economic planning and extremely violent authoritarianism that discredited many of the arguments for non-market forms of economic organising. But I think it's also worth recognising the violence with which neoliberalism has been imposed. I also think that there's been a sort of a profound ideological campaign which has not just been a campaign on economic grounds, but also one that has played out in the political realm, on the terrain of freedom, in the, the argument of those like Hayek that any attempt to redistribute resources would lead to the destruction of all human freedom. I think it's worth noticing that it seems to me that many of those ideas are wearing off. I I know that research polling in the United States, some polls have suggested that a majority of young people have said that they prefer socialism to capitalism. Now, those are often very um, sort of inchoate ideas of what that would mean. But I think that some of the scare tactics around other forms of economic organising are less prominent in people's minds today. I also think that some of of the real irrationalities of the capitalist market system are really clear today. So when you read accounts of economic planning written by the defenders of markets, they're constantly talking about the irrationalities and the distortions produced by economic plans. For instance, the fact that a plan measured nails in number of nails and so factories started producing very small nails. Or if they measured nail production by weight, they started producing few very big heavy nails. Now, of course, these irrationalities are real. But when we look at our own society where one man can spend $5.5 billion on spending four minutes in outer spa, in space, sorry, And at the same time, the World Food Programme has estimated that $6 billion would be sufficient to save over 40 million people from the threat of starvation. Now, this seems like a profound irrationality of the kind of system that we live in today. And an irrationality also, not just at the level of equality and inequality, but also at the level of power and freedom if you look at the kind of freedom that is enabled for Amazon workers, for example, it's very hard to argue that they really have the freedom to determine all the aspects of their life because when it comes to their work life, they're subjected to very rigid and authoritarian forms of control. So I think that while the market arguments were taken from 1989 onwards to really have been victorious. I think that today in a context of great economic inequality and particularly in a context of climate crisis, the argument that profitability should be our sole factor in determining questions about production no longer really holds the same sheen that it did a couple of decades ago.
0: Well, Jessica, it's been uh, great to talk with you here in the Philosopher's Zone. Thanks so much for coming on the program.
1: Thanks very
0: much. And Jessica White is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New South Wales. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into what we've been talking about today, then we've put a link to Jessica's research paper, Calculation and Conflict, on the Philosopher's Zone website, and I thoroughly recommend it. And that's the program for another week. Uh, Before we go, I just wanted to mention that the 2021 Alan Saunders Lecture is going to be broadcast on RN's Big Ideas program on Monday, August the 16th at 8pm. The guest is Stephen Gardner. He's a philosopher from the University of Washington in Seattle. And his topic is climate crisis and institutional denialism. That's Big Ideas, Monday, August the 16th at 8pm or anytime via the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at DavidPZone and I hope you'll join me again next week here in the Philosopher's Zone. Bye for now.